listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Fran Barber. Hello, everyone. Hi, and I'm Robin Whitaker. And this is uh, Transfiguration Sunday, the last Sunday before Lent begins. And we're going to be looking at briefly all four readings, but a focus on 2 Kings chapter 2, 1 to 12. Psalm 50, 1 to 6, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 9, and lastly, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 6. So let's begin with 2 Kings, Fran. Um, what do we need to know to kind of give us some context for this rather bizarre story? Yeah, with, I think within. we can probably see why the lectionaries paired it with the uh, Mark yep. and 1. Um, but in another level, it is... Um, um, a semi-arbitrary cameo of Israel's history that we're, or a, you know, a, a little portion of what's happened, a big, tra- a moment of transition, really. Mm. Uh, so the Book of Kings obviously traces the history of Israel under the leadership of kings. Um, when the king, the kingdoms were div- kingdom was divided between north and south, and I believe there were twenty kings in each portion of the kingdom. Um, right. mm-hmm. They were part of the the Book of Kings. Um, also is putting these kings under assessment. Do they um, uh, deal with idolatry? Do they promote the worship of God alone? Um, do they keep the covenant as King David kept it? Um, not surprisingly, we find that most of the time they don't do any of those things <laughs> properly. Um, and so prophets, are, I'm speaking very generally here, super important um, contributors to uh, our understanding of Israel and its history and of their self-understanding. There were oceans of prophets, as this reading indicates, um, mm. and some actually were the henchmen perhaps of the kings and not all that prophetic at all. Others were, and the ones we hear mostly about in our scripture readings, mm. uh, challenging the status quo, utterly challenging Israel for um, social injustice and for violence and so on, yep. uh, which is <clears throat> what Elijah and Elisha are, are doing. Yep. Um, so we come in when at the end of the era of yes. Elijah and the passing over of the mantle. So um, a lot to, to, to hear for our sort of more secular under- talks, uh, conversations about leadership and about or mentoring, you know, putting up mm-hmm. your hand and um, being willing to walk alongside someone who's starting out. Um, and also um, questions about leadership maybe you could even tap into, although it's not in this reading, but that whole thing about are these leaders behaving ethically and doing, you know. Yeah, all those and, things. And we live in a world that doesn't, uh, well, uh, many of the leaders we observe are not behaving Yeah, that's right. Ethically. So Elijah is, I mean, he's remembered in the tradition as one of the great prophets and as we'll see when we get to Mark, um, there is also partly because of the way Elijah leaves, which is this story, being taken up to heaven, uh, the later apocalyptic expectation is that Elijah must come before Jesus Mm -hmm. or before the Son of Man can come. So because of the mysterious nature of his death, so to speak, I mean, he doesn't really die, he's taken up, um, he becomes unusual. That's part of the kind of... um, communal memory of him as the mm. exceptional prophet. Mm. And he's also exceptional. I mean, as you said, Fran, there were prophets who were very much in the court of the king, right right in the centre of power. And then there are prophets, and Elijah is one of them who I think had a lot of power, but he spoke against the king because he was operative under um, Ahab. Ahab, yeah. 
uh, who worshipped Baal. So the prophets would also call out when the kings had, you know, forgotten the covenant and who they're supposed to be worshipping. But let's look at the details in this passage. So we've got Elijah and Elisha travelling together. So yeah. we've got a bit of a travel narr- narrative yeah, going on. and those on. place names are crucial. Um, yeah, what do we know actually, about them? Well, they're Elijah and Elisha in this trajectory from Gilgal to Bethel is uh, reversing Israel's entry into the promised land. Mm. Um, so already we can we can see in the text that um, Israel's failing to live up to the covenant according to the author and the prophets here, and yeah. so he's making it her way backwards. Yeah, from the promised land, um, and they're leaving. And when they cross the Jordan, they do it in the reverse direction. Yeah, that's from entering the fascinating land. symbolism, isn't it? So that's the kind of little detail that just reading those places and ignoring it would miss. Yes, because we don't know the geography, but it's actually significant. Um, so yeah, it's interesting that this sort of activity of God in taking Elijah, as it's framed, is then something that happens on the cusp of or on the edge of the promised land, not in the heart of it, right? So says something about where God is operative and again where, yeah. Mm. And the other thing I found quite lovely, and this is the very human element of this story, is there's the this repre- repeated, sorry, I can't speak today, repeated kind of movement of um, Elijah telling Elisha, stay here, you don't need to leave mm. with me. Mm. And he says, no, um, I, I won't I won't forsake you or whatever your mm. translation mm. is. And this mm. gets repeated several times as they're on this journey. I won't forsake you, I won't forsake you. And he knows Elijah is going to leave. He's been warned. And yet it still kind of seems to come as a shock when he actually mm. is taken up, maybe because there's fire horses and chariots and all sorts of strange things I going on. I suspect that has something to do with it. But, <laughs> but you know, it, it goes to – I think there's something very human here about we can be prepared for change or prepared for a change of leadership or whatever that looks mm. like, and it can still be a shock when it actually happens. Mm. I was thinking about the psychology, the, the dynamic in the psychology there a bit mm. um, as well from the perspective of Elijah, that is, um, stay here. Is, is you know, is it that he, he wants to be alone? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know. I was, I was, Don't yeah. burden me with your emotions. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm on my way out. You stay here, you know. That. Yeah. Or, or is, I mean, there's lots of, um, and I'm just, this is pure speculation, um, is the stay here, stay here and be a prophet in the land and mm. Elisha's kind of dedication is to Elijah and he's got to then go back and sort of learn that, almost re-enter the land, mm. thinking of the geography. Um, could play with some of that stuff. Um, we are in this sort of, you know, visionary tradition that we get patches of in the Old Testament, you know, with like think of Isaiah and the vision in the temple and stuff where we've got the sense of heaven breaking in mm. and... Um, Scholars really don't know what to make. There's not a lot of um, precursors for this idea of fiery horses and chariots, but um, it is, of course, you know, tapping into probably a kind of a divine warrior type imagery for God, that God is sending these horses and chariots. Chariots would have mostly been used in warfare, um, sort of down to grab Elijah. So... um, Again, we've got this image of God sort of operative in the heavenly realm with uh, agents at his disposal to order around, which we get a glimpse of in the psalm of God sort of in heaven, mm. you know. But there's this the sort world. of thin veil here at this experience where the, the, the earthly and the heavenly are sort of touching, I suppose you could say. Yes, um, I think that's right. Which is very much like the transfiguration. 
Yeah, um, yeah. The other thing um, to think about with this one is uh, what Elisha asks for. Yes. So double portion, which I gather in the original language could be double mouthful or bellyful. It's mm. quite a, a sort of a, a bodily um, um, phrase. Mm. Um, but could also be asking for the inheritance of the firstborn. Yes, who gets a double portion in the family allotment of sons. Yeah. Inheritance. Um, it's, that's an interesting one as well around, um, again, at the level of psychology, being willing to ask, you know, to be daring and, and uh, I suppose um, put yourself forward in that yeah. way instead of saying, oh, yeah, no, I'm not good enough, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not wanting to do this. Well, actually, I do, and give me the double portion <laughs> of yes. your gifts and calling. Yeah, because it's actually Elijah that says you've asked for a hard thing. Yeah, um, you know this maybe a little bit of sense of you don't quite know what you've yeah, asked yeah. for. Do you know what? Yeah, yeah, do you know what you're asking for? Um, but yeah, that double portion. I was interested when I read that. Um, elder sons would get the double portion of inheritance because. L- Towards the end of our lectionary reading, when Elijah is taken, Elisha cries out, my father, my father. So we get this quite intimate, like their relationship is almost like a father and a son mm. and we've got resonances of that without throughout this passage. Um, and then there's that, there is that biblical theme of the secondborn actually taking leadership yes. over the firstborn in many instances yep. um, through, the, through the Hebrew stories. Yeah. And, of course, Elisha would go on to be also a very successful prophet. Well, yeah, I did see some statistics on that, that in fact he got what he asked for and that in the, in the, um, in the narrative, Elijah gets eight miracles in, script, in the scriptures and Elisha gets 16. But I didn't go and double-check those. <laughs> we'll believe them. If you feel like counting them up and emailing us, tell us what you find. But yeah, I mean, there's also a theme here for churches around new leadership or Mm. um, you know risky leadership, uh, or recognizing that something new and wonderful might come from um, from the reluctance to let go of something familiar. Yes. Uh, And that the call out of conservatism in that sense is is a real one. And yeah. Might might give someone a chance to lead the people and and express their gifts in the community. Yeah, and I think too, at the risk of sort of psychologizing the text a bit, we can do what this text does, which is it's telling this kind of over the top miraculous wondrous story of Elijah's sort of climactic exit from the mm. scene, if you like, and we can do this right with leaders. We can eulogize them even when they're not actually dead, and imagine that no one can fill their shoes. So there's something here about the promise of God and the reassurance, even acknowledging the shock and the grief, that Elisha does go on to fill his shoes and do more, mm. right? Like that, that, you know, in our Uniting Church tradition, we have something in our basis of union, and I can't remember the precise words, but around the, you know, God will never leave her church mm. without prophets and scholars and martyrs and teachers or whatever the language there is, ministers. The last thing to strike me in this text, um, not quite so significant but interesting, is the tearing of the garment in two and um, presumably meaning the former identity has been broken open perhaps. And grief. And grief. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, there's a lot in the scriptures around clothing. Yeah. And we hear about it in Mark and reading. And then he picks up the mantle, right? So there is symbolism in the in the clothing that he puts on literally Elijah's yeah. cloak. Yes, and you, so he yeah. becomes the... So, yeah, we've got the grief and then the kind of redressing all quite, you know. So we might, I mean, if you're preaching on this passage, you could speculate around the kind of the rituals and the performative things we do around transition mm. of leadership that, I mean, in, in ordinations we dress people with a stole, right? Like we undress, we do this with baptism. There are lots of ways we use clothing quite significantly to mark new stages of someone's life. Mm. So, mm. The other angle too, just before we move on, is, is the whole notion of prophecy and mm. the prophetic voice and the church's role in having in being a witness and a prophetic witness. And um, I mean, that's a very big theme, but, it, you know, it's fairly telling that in the big picture here, the prophets are not terribly successful in the end. Um, not these not ones. Always. Are, not always. No, yeah. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, there's a, there's a conversation there. Yeah. Or the faithfulness of God still with us, even though this prophecy, this task of prophecy is, um, is is hard and yeah. risky. Yep. And not successful in worldly terms often. No, that's right. Might leave you leaving the land and going to the edges somewhere. Yep. Or sitting next to the king and saying hard things. Could go either way. Mm. Should so, we talk about the psalm? We should. So Psalm 50, only six verses. Yeah. I mean, I like this and I'd probably use it liturgically, um, but I think the imagery here matches very much with what we've seen in Second Kings 2 of a kind of God who's shining, as language of beauty. Of course, this is also going to point us forward to Mark where we're going to get some of these same shining, beautiful images for Jesus as a sign of his divinity. Um, we've got, you know, we had the whirlwind in Second Kings. Here we've got God as, as fire and tempest. So a sense of God as controlling the cosmos and in heaven surrounded by, you know, heavenly beings but who can kind of call and command people. So I quite like verse 5. You could play with this liturgically, gather to me my faithful ones who mm. made a covenant, you know, gather. What is it like when God gathers us? And That's a good as, call to worship. Actually. Yeah, and as God has gathered Elijah into kind of God's bosom, mm. um, what does it mean to be gathered into God's fold? Mm. Yep. Okay. The Gospel of Mark. Yes, chapter 9 and verse 2. Now before we go into that, I just want to make mm. mention of a book that is not new but I've just come across properly and it's Gail Ramshaw's book, Treasures mm. Old and New. Uh, I think it's probably from 20 years ago. There's f- fabulous chapters on, on images in the lectionary like light and clothing and covenant. Mm. Several of them are pertinent for this week's readings uh, and the chapter on light is a really good one to read in preparation for preaching um, and transfiguration. I mean, of course, she talks about the archetypal nature of the image of light for religions and faiths and traditions going back thousands of years. Yeah. Um, and the distinctive um, Judeo-Christian st- creation story where it's clearly um, the light comes from God and is not the sun, um, yep. whereas other traditions have worshipped the sun and so on. But she so also, yep. yeah, she also draws your attention to that um, issue of darkness and blindness and the that the, the problem of um, um, 
getting into racist areas where you use light and white interchangeably yeah. and yeah. how we should um, be very alert to that. Mindful of that. So that's Gail Ramshaw, Treasures Old and New, and we can put a link in our show notes if anyone wants to yeah. follow up but that yeah, book. Just a suggestion mm. for so this transfiguration scene in Mark 9 comes right in the midst of um, or right after a kind of a turning point in the gospel really. At the end of chapter 8 we've had the famous... Who do people say I am? And, um, you know, where Jesus rebukes Peter and then tells them to be silent and we get the first of his passion predictions. So, yeah, he's just turning you know, to Jerusalem. Yeah, he's turning towards Jerusalem. They've been as far north as they get and they're now, so geography again, <laughs> they're now heading south back down towards Jerusalem and obviously in Mark's Gospel that's very much a journey to the cross and Jesus will three times talk about the Son of Man must die and suffer um, so we've just had that, and then we get this scene. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. So they they're the kind of three often the, named the inner the inner, inner core. Yep, <clears throat> up a high mountain. So of course, as soon as we get to a high mountain, we're in well the heavenly realm. Or um, yep. I think I've heard Dorothy Lee describe it as the suburbs of heaven. Is where <laughs> yes. um, Peter, James, and John are here. <laughs> Yes, the thin places, which is where the where the mountain where we know biblically. Yes, um, exactly. Is places of revelation um, of God or revelation of God's covenant or law, etc. Yeah, exactly. And I think we've got a couple of resonances of that Mount Sinai, Moses. Um, a, we've got the presence of Moses coming up, but down in verse uh, seven, we get a cloud that overshadows them. So we've got a lot of things. Oh, yeah, the clouds are the cloud, the mountain. Moses takes us right back to Sinai. Um, so we've got the conflation of various mm. traditions going on here. It's very thick with symbolism. Mm. And some astonishing things take place. Uh, firstly, uh, Jesus' clothing becomes dazzling bright. Yes. And Mark describes this. It's almost like he doesn't have enough words for so, so yeah, something supernatural. Dazzling bright, such as no one on earth could brighten them. Or bleach them, literally. Bleach it's them. Li- literally, this is not a human whiteness. This is a dazzling um, brightness what? of clothing that is not human, he's mm. trying to say. Mm. Like, this is, yeah. Um, and, and, then, and then the next amazing thing is that Elijah and Moses... Just turn up. Just turn up. <laughs> On this mountain, having a chat with oh. Jesus. Um, so, I mean, this this strange verse does a few things, I think. I mean, for starters, just portraying them as talking with Jesus as if this is a totally normal thing for Jesus to do mm. says something about Jesus' status and identity, that he belongs with these two significant prophetic figures one associated with the law, one associated as the sort of prophets. They're both prophets. but um, I feel like the whole passage is just flashing lights itself <laughs> to, the, to the hearers. Yeah. You recognise, you do know who this guy is because he's like, he's come from all of this. Yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. This is it, not, it's freaky. I mean, that's very colloquial. But, yeah. you know, but you know it. Yes. You know it. You knew it was coming and this is him. This is the one because there's all these connections yeah. that you know about. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then we've got Peter's lovely little inter- interjection, let's make three tents, three dwellings for you. I mean, we could psychologise that as people have done. 
is Peter trying to honour them? Is Peter trying to keep them there? Is he? Tr- I mean, Skene dwellings, tents are also the word for tabernacle. Is he building little mini places of worship? We don't know. Well, even <laughs> if it's any of those things, it's all wrong. In inverted commas. <laughs> well, oh, I mean, poor Peter. I know, but like, it, it is not getting it. Whatever, whether it's. Any yeah, of those things. He's trying to capture the moment figuratively and literally almost. Yeah. Um, it, and the honouring in such a way that Jesus will not be honoured. I mean, you know, he goes to the cross. So there's a misunderstanding there as well. Yeah, exactly. So, he, I mean, and I think the fact that, I mean, Mark tells us he didn't know what to say. So this is a bit like, the, like he felt he had to do something. Mm. So, I mean, again, if you wanted to preach a more sort of, I guess, reflection on our behaviour as a kind of conversation with this passage. Um, How does this hold up a mirror to us about how when we're confronted by things we don't understand or are challenging or are miraculous or whatever that transformative, Mm. we default to kind of we've got to do something like make Mm. a cup of tea, vacuum the floor. Like what are the things Mm. we do to try and feel normal when we can't actually just sit with the wonder and the, the challenge fear. Well, or the, the fear, fear. of yeah. the um, of what we're experiencing. So I, I just think of this, I mean, again, like we're in a world and you you and I, Fran, have talked about this before, where, where we distract ourselves in so many ways, right? We've got constant streaming, mm. we've got phones, we've got... Podcasts. Podcasts. <laughs> Obviously not this one, this one's vital. Um <laughs> But we've got a million ways to distract ourselves from sitting with the divine and sometimes with mm. the discomfort mm. of the divine and just being attentive to our feelings and what the hell's going on with us. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, no, no. I think, well, it, in other language, what you're describing we tend to want to do is domesticate the moment or domesticate yeah. the gospel. So we'll say, oh, well, the resurrections, it's like the butterfly coming out of the cocoon. Like, you know, this is categories we all get, don't we? So it's like that and it's like, yeah. mm, no, not really. Yeah. <laughs> and It's, it's uh, more mysterious and bizarre than that. It is, yes. Uh, and so there's ways we might explain this story that would empty it you know, we'd, we'd put realism in it and just empty it of yeah. imagination and um, wonder and of the possibility that there are categories we don't grasp. Yes, exactly. And I think whatever we do on this Sunday, it is not our job to explain the transfiguration. This is like, you know, Trinity Sunday and the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Like these are not things to explain in any kind of normal scientific mm. – That's are, a bit boring to do that. Oh, no, it's tedious and it's also, I think, impossible and not the point. This is but why to I, sit with the wonder, mm, right? Like This is why I do recall again Dorothy saying a few years ago when we were talking to her about this, the vital role that icons from the Eastern Orthodox tradition in particular can play generally but in, re- in relation to this – this story in particular because of their depiction of light around the heads the head of mm. Jesus and that in fact um, one of them she described the disciples are almost falling down the hill in fear but the light still captures them mm. there's something about um, yeah she th- there's a capture of this mysterious moment that is also quite human in this well perhaps I'll get to that now you know just what does Peter not understand um, and and um, this is a depiction again and again, again in Mark of disciples failing to grasp it. Like yeah, not yeah, which is everywhere in Mark. That's a big Mark and theme. And right? so, yep. and we we of weak faith. I mean, we're that's us. Yes. 
Um, so the story um, depicts that but doesn't leave us there. No, it doesn't. And in fact, yeah, because there's other significant things that happen. But And I don't mean to bag up, Peter. I'm actually quite sympathetic. I come from English stock where when terrible things happen, what do you do? You go make a cup of tea. Because yeah, actually yeah. doing something very normal yeah, yeah. is a coping strategy for. Um, and just on a Greek note, that word for um, they were terrified, this is a, a form of phobos, the fear word, phobia, mm. um, but it's ekphobos. So it is like literally terif- fearful out of his mind. Mm. He's, this is a very strong word. So there is um, – it's not just that he's puzzled. There is a really strong reaction to what he's experiencing because he has no way to map onto that. I mean, what, nothing's mm. prepared mm. him for this mm. experience. So um, one of the important – well, the important – one of the important theological points of this good news from this story is that this remarkable moment of transfiguration and revelation we share so that we become transfigured in the light of Christ and so Mm -hmm. we're not left in our um, misunderstanding. Well, we still are, but, you know, like we're we're not left fearful that we are actually taken up and transfigured in the moments as well and through our baptism. So are you saying, Fran, this story functions, um, and we haven't talked about this yet, but not only to point us to who Jesus is but to remind us of our own um, ultimate transfiguration? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like a glimmer of the resurrection, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I think so. This story. And it's interesting it's midway through Mark because it points us, we haven't got to verse, well, seven yet with the cloud and, and the um, the voice, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. And, of course, the last time we heard that was in his baptism mm. back in chapter one. Mm. Um, and the third time we hear this is the son of God, framed slightly differently, will be at the foot of the cross in the mouth of a Gentile soldier where he sees Jesus die and says, surely... This is God's son. Um, So it points us back to the baptism and the giant affirmation of Jesus. It points us forward to the cross, but it also gives us a glimpse of the resurrection, Mm. I think. So it's 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 doing all of that and telling us about Jesus' identity too as divine because in this world, Jewish or Greek, things that are shiny and light and bright and can talk to dead people are divine. So it makes total sense. We're at the the high point of epiphany we're right at the end and we're coming into the journey into lent we are getting writ large um reaffirmation of who this jesus is yeah and we are transfigured by his coming yeah now we haven't forayed into i don't even know if that's a verb had a foray (laughs) into two corinthians Again, no, we haven't it's, it's very evocative of the same sort of imagery um of 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 light and understanding and not understanding and blindness and so on. Yeah, um, and it's just a few little verses from 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 6. And Paul in this section, and he'll get there in verse 7, is riffing on treasures in clay jars. Mm. So plain outsides, clay jars are not ordained or, 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 or ornate. ornate. Sorry, yeah, I knew what you Again, meant. Yeah, mixing up my <laughs> words today, people. Um but there's a treasure inside, mm. so it's this sort of um, – and I think uh, we've got the same language here of veiling and unveiling, mm. so things being hidden and uncovered and seeing light. So we've got images of light and 
associated with Jesus, who Paul will call the image of God. So in some ways it's not enough text to really preach on the Second Corinthians passage all by itself. I find it a curious choice mm. by the lectionary organisers. Um, but I think for me it sparks some of the bigger questions that I would want to ponder as a preacher. I was just going to say that in that yeah. verse 5 there. Yeah. What we preach is not ourselves. There's something about there's perhaps not this fragment and you're right it's just a fragment but it's Corinthian a, yeah. this part of Corinthians is could very much be um encouragement to the church and to preachers. Yeah. Uh, about the message that we bring. Um Yeah, and what Jesus are we preaching like we all default to I think a, a dominant image, right? Is it the Jesus of the transfiguration? Is it the Jesus of the cross? Is it the Jesus of the baptism? Um how do we Make sure we're holding all of those things together. And and sorry, the challenge of not preaching ourselves is a big one in a yeah. culture that is highly performative and has social media and TikTok with everyone on there telling their stories. Yes. You know, and we so this becomes a reflection for the preacher. I mean, you you could talk about that with your people, it might be quite good. Yes, exactly. I think too, this image of light and dark, I mean, you could also preach a you could pick up some of the images in this in these readings um, and the emphasis on God as light and think about like, – there's a cluster of questions for me about how do we imagine God, where do we find the bright spots in our lives when we feel the darkness might overwhelm, like what is it that sustains us in faith, in life? That, that, um, sorry, that yeah. reminds me of something. Go. I've interrupted. In Gail's uh, Ramshaw's um, chapter on light, she makes mention of this parts of the scripture, and I think it's Isaiah, where God is actually described as darkness as well. Yes. And what she wants to do is not have us only talk of God as light. Um, mm. It's utterly dominant. She's very clear. I mean, we can see that that's yeah. the case. But by having a look at this other imagery, we start to see nuance in reality and then how it's not simple to find the good and the evil sometimes. Yeah. Um, I like that. And also, I mean, there's a sense that light is only light when darkness is there, right? So even mm, this image of mm. light shining in the darkness is actually an image that affirms that God is in the middle of the darkness, mm. right? So we... It's part of Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think there's... A, I don't know, Fran, what you would preach. The last one that occurs to me while you think about that um, is... You know, again, we could return to where we started with both the Elijah image and Jesus in the Transfiguration about how we how we deal with transition and change, and often how we want people to stay the same. We want things to stay the same. Um, can we accept that our leaders morph and move on? Um, can we accept that our faith in God, like our relationship with God, will morph and move on? Like, so there's a whole theme you could play with there around, mm. um, you know. I think, again, we live in a culture that says we don't like people changing their minds. In fact, if you're a politician and you've changed your mind, it's a criticism. And yet I would say any growth requires mm. us to constantly be changing our minds um, or at least expanding them, mm. you know. I don't know. I've, we've not got much time left, but there's something for me in both these stories we've touched on around imagination and letting the gospel speak its categories to us and the wonder of it. So I'd be wanting to preach something that didn't try to domesticate and control all of that. Mm. But the good news for me, <laughs> speaking very – yeah, is that we are captured, we are brought into this light. Mm. It's not just something we, we observe – so we too are transformed mm. by it and right. with it. and yeah. yeah. That's probably enough for this week. Thanks, everyone. 
By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.